Father, we, we ask for your wisdom, your insight, and the ability to retain information from your word, that it would not quickly evaporate from our minds. That as we see the examples set forth in Scripture of how John was faithful to proclaim the Messiah and his advent, his first advent, we ask that you would help us to be faithful to speak of the first advent and the second, the return of Jesus Christ, and what that means for us and for the world. As we do so, Lord, we desire that you would enable us to have an impact beyond our lives, that would be able to touch others, just as Paul has touched us and Luke through the writings of Paul here in the book of Acts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Acts chapter 19, verse 1, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Now, Paul could have gone straight across the ocean. I believe it might have been the Aegean Sea right there from Corinth over to Ephesus, but he didn't do that. He went back up and around and dropped down into Asia Minor, which is the area of Turkey. He visited the other churches and brought encouragement to him, the ones that were uh, established on his first or second missionary journey. And and so he took the long way around, it's several hundred miles to do that. In verse 2, we see, he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. So these people... They were Jews. They would attend the synagogue. They were disciples, but not in the full sense of the New Testament, like we would be disciples. They had heard that the Messiah was coming. They didn't know who the Messiah was. They had not been taught about or experienced the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And if they had known Jesus, they would have experienced the Holy Spirit. And this has to do with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we get saved... God does this. He puts us into Christ, so to speak. We are his body. But he also places within us his Holy Spirit. Now, when you got saved, maybe you felt sorrowful. Maybe you felt joyful and happy on the inside. Maybe you felt... Uh, repentant, you know, that, that, uh, sorrow, God does not despise a broken and contrite heart, that type of thing. But you may have felt something. Other people, they don't feel anything. And that's when the Holy Spirit definitely comes in and indwells us on the inside. But when the Holy Spirit comes in what's being talked about here, like the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you know it. But not all people experience something that's external like tongues or prophecy it was Spurgeon who said give a man an electric shock and I warrant you he will know it but if he has the Holy Ghost he will know it much more this isn't something to hope about we can know just as much as you know if you have a house and a family that there are four quarters to a dollar you can know you are filled with the Holy Spirit Now, I think he's referring to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, certainly the indwelling. Some people feel something. Some people don't feel anything. And this begs the question, or people ask the question after this, well, what is it that you would experience if you don't experience tongues or prophecy? What is it that when the Holy Spirit baptizes you, and of course the word is power, the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you, What is it that you might experience if you don't experience the tongues and the prophecy? Well, some people, they will talk about having a tingling or a sensation that's going on and they just feel happy or filled with joy. I think some of the things, scripturally speaking, that we can experience, number one, is an inner voice. Now, you have to be careful with this inner voice. Is it just you talking to yourself 
or maybe a suggestion that's being brought up in your mind is the enemy putting something in your mind if you have this inner voice and you have to train yourself to hear the holy spirit he doesn't always speak but when he does we don't always listen to what he has to say and we have to have those ears to hear what the spirit says to us who are in the church this is the first two chapters of the book of revelation so there's the inner voice that you might have that comes from the holy spirit bible talks about when the holy spirit is in us he bears testimony or witness with our own spirit that we are saved and so you have this sense of peace maybe that is there that you ask yourself the question am i saved do i trust in jesus christ for my salvation And you'll get the sense of, yes, I am, because I have done what the Lord has asked me to do. So that's the second one. First is the inner voice, and then second is the inner peace. And it it can be a feeling that you get, tingling, a little adrenaline going on there. But you can't trust this, because Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 8, says the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you guys are familiar with that? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. So there, there's this thing of the heart. Where you, do you trust it? Do you not trust it? Is it wicked? And sometimes it's more wicked than we even comprehend. It can lead us in the wrong direction. So there's also this inner joy that you can have or inner contentment. There can be a manifestation, like I said previously, of tongues or prophecy being given. And tongues is for an unbeliever. The gift of tongues is a sign for unbelievers and prophecy is a sign for believers. And so when somebody experiences, quote unquote, the baptism of the spirit, all of these things can happen. There are problems associated with this that I'll get to in a minute, but the disciples were disciples that were in Acts chapter 19, disciples of John the Baptist and possibly the disciples of Apollos because Apollos was in the same boat with this. They became disciples of Jesus and they were baptized a second time. So the first time they were baptized, a baptism of repentance. The second time they were baptized into Jesus. Now, this also brings up the question, how many times should I get baptized? Well, go back a little bit. How many times have you asked to be saved? How many times does it take? It only takes one time. But how many times have you asked? I know in my life, am I saved? uh, Lord, save me. Just save me. I just say it just to say it. And I know scripture says one time. it's, It's good enough. Baptism, too. If somebody wants to get baptized in water, how many times should you let them get baptized? Well, once or twice I think is good. I think I've told you before, I've been baptized twice. Once in the ocean with Mike McIntosh and company, and once in the Jordan River in Israel. I just wanted to get in the water. Did it do anything? Was I not being obedient the first time? No, it I just wanted to get in the water and get baptized there in Israel. That's where I wanted to get baptized. What if people want to get baptized three or four times? I might counsel them first and say, why do you want to get baptized again? And they say, well, I just want to renew everything. Okay, let's get baptized. I just want to make sure they understand that what they're getting baptized for, that they don't come up in this water baptism and say, well, I'm not sure that I'm saved. I need to wash the sins off a little more, go a little deeper, stay down a little longer. That doesn't do it. Baptism doesn't do that. It's just an act of obedience that God asks us to perform as a public witness that we belong to him. We identify with the death, burial, and resurrection. That's what the going into the water represents. And the resurrection coming out, that's why we get water baptized. And so this is not what he is referring to, the indwelling Holy Spirit that all believers partake in. We are placed in Christ at our acceptance of him. And God's Holy Spirit is placed in us when we accept him. So those two things take place. We are in Jesus and the Holy Spirit is in us. If somebody doesn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit, they are not saved. 
Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says, And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So the person that confesses with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. They get the indwelling Holy Spirit on the inside. So what is being referred to here is this is either the baptism of the Holy Spirit of God or it is the baptism of the Holy Spirit of God in the life of the believer. Now in the Old Testament... Individuals could be filled with the Holy Spirit, but it was not a permanent state. When we are saved in the New Testament, the God of the universe who created everything, he indwells in us and promises never to go away. There are at least three scriptures that deal with that, that the Spirit has been given to us as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And so we have the Holy Spirit if we are saved. Now, in Judges chapter 14, an example of a temporary filling or the God, God would come and go with this Holy Spirit. This happened with Samson. It says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father or mother about what he had done. So Samson killed a lion because the Spirit of God came on him. And to... Get an idea of how strong lions are. Have you guys ever seen the video? It's like five buff men. I mean, tough men. They're at the zoo, and there is a rope that goes through a window to one lioness. And these five guys are trying to pull the rope away from one lion, and they can't do it. Five guys cannot do it. The lioness is just sitting there like, it's no big deal. Go ahead, pull. Kind of like tug of war. That's how strong lions are. I, I wouldn't want to contend with the lion. There's no way, unless you get a really good shot and you had a knife or a gun or something, you're toast if you tried to go against a lion. But Samson, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, he tore it apart like a young goat. That's the strength that the Lord can give to us if it's necessary or he wants to perform some task. But King David wrote, cast not your Holy Spirit from me. In other words, it was possible that the Holy Spirit would go away just like the Holy Spirit left the temple. The Shekinah glory of God left the temple and went through the eastern gate and went over the Mount of Olives and left the Israelites when they were disobedient and so in the old testament the holy spirit could come upon somebody give them tremendous power but would not remain normally there would be specific times in the new testament the holy spirit indwells us and we can have this power so to speak the baptism of the holy spirit now again a question arises so these 12 men who were disciples of john were they saved this question comes up because you look at them, they're Jews, they're in the synagogue, they believe the Old Testament, they're disciples of John, maybe disciples of Apollos as well, and they say, okay, the Messiah is coming and we believe in him, but they don't know who the Messiah is, it's Jesus Christ, and Paul tells them about Jesus Christ, baptizes them in water in Jesus Christ later, prays for them that they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and they speak in tongues and they prophesy. So are these guys saved? Were they saved prior to Paul coming up? I believe they were. Just like in the Old Testament, how were people saved in the Old Testament? They're saved, they go to heaven. How do they get to that place? Because remember, according to the book of Romans, everybody's under a curse. If you don't have Jesus in your life, if you haven't received him as your Lord and Savior, the gift of salvation, you don't go to heaven. Just the resisting of that says you are against God. You're not going to heaven. So these guys, they were men of faith. That's how they accepted God, who he was. Like Abraham was a man of faith. Now, he didn't know Jesus by name. Of course, Jesus, I believe, in a Christophany showed up, presented himself to him before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But I don't know that Jesus ever told him his name. We know Jacob asked the name of Jesus when he showed up in a Christophany. And Jesus said, why do you ask my name? My name is too wonderful for you. And he wouldn't tell him his name, who it was. But it is believed by 
most scholars out there and myself that it's this, not that I'm a scholar, but I believe what the scholars have to say, that that was a manifestation of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity in the Old Testament. And there are several examples of that. So these people believed in God by faith. They were following God. They were in the synagogue they believed everything in the Old Testament. They believed John and that the Messiah was coming. And so they were men of faith. They just didn't know what the faith that they had, who it was to be directed to. And that's what Paul cleared up. Well, it's Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the one you're supposed to direct your worship and adoration to and the honor. It goes to him. And so I believe they were saved. They just hadn't completed the trek of knowing who the Messiah was. You can transfer that to us and you say, well, are people saved that don't know the name of Jesus yet? It's possible. I've heard missionary stories where somebody will go out and they will talk about God and they will talk about the son of God and they will explain all about him. And the people who had not been reached yet said, oh, we know who this is. We just didn't know his name. It's God revealing himself to the people who seek after God. Is that possible? I think it's possible. Is it wise to rely on that? No, it's not. You want to give somebody the clear gospel. Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and his ultimate return, and he can save us. So these disciples were seeking after God. They wanted to know him more. God meets them in their seeking, and he honors that. Now, in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, he tells us that if we seek God with all our heart, he will let himself be found by us. But we have to seek after him. It says there, you will seek me when you find me, or excuse me, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. But if somebody turns away and says, no, I don't want to seek after God. Second Chronicles 15, 1 says, the spirit of God came upon Azariah, son of Obed. He went out to meet Asa and said to him, listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you. And when you are with him, if you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. So God honors our request. He doesn't force himself upon us. He, he doesn't come to us and say, you will listen to me. Now, has there ever been a case of that? Yes. Moses, Lord, send somebody else. <laughs> Please, Lord. And God, Jesus, I believe, at Christophany, showed up to kill him because he wasn't being obedient. And I said, I'm going to force you to do this or else. And his wife, Sephora, interceded. And of course, there are examples of that where God just takes somebody and makes them go somewhere or do something. But it's very, very rare. God doesn't like to interrupt what our will is. And our will is constantly at odds with God's will. And I mean constantly. If God asks you, if you hear that inner voice, he asks you maybe to pray or something. I don't feel like praying right now. I'm not going to do that. Or go talk to somebody. No, I don't want to talk to them. Right? I'm just not feeling it right now. Or any act of obedience. When we want to be disobedient, I don't, blah, 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 blah. I'm not listening to the Holy Spirit. We do that all the time. But if we belong to God, eventually we get to the point where we say, you know, God, you're right. I should have done this. I'm sorry. I repent of that sin. I'm not being obedient to you. And God goes, I know your flesh. I got to destroy that flesh. I got to give you a new nature. That's why we get our new bodies. That's why there's a new heaven and earth. He has to get rid of that old nature that is in there. But we constantly resist it. So if we desire to seek after God, and even some of that prompting comes from the Holy Spirit or from those who are around us that tell us about God, and all of a sudden it perks up in us like, you're talking about God. Who is God to you? I, I want to know more about this. And then we seek after him. God, I want to know who you are. He responds to that and he brings people along or he brings a message on the radio or on the internet and we listen to it. Oh, okay. Have you ever asked God for an answer to a particular question? Say, God, I don't understand this. And you pray, say, God, would you bring me understanding? 
And he brings the understanding and you go, oh, he heard my prayer. He answered my prayer. You get more excited about that than the answer that comes along. And, and it's a great thing to do that. He's reaching out to us. And that's the nature of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit loves us. He wants to work inside of us. He wants to show us great things. He wants to use us. But most of the time you go, ah, nah, not right now. Lord, send somebody else. That's our nature. And it's hard to maintain this level. I'm so on fire for the Lord. I burn everybody that comes next to me because I'm so hot for the Lord and that type of thing. That's immaturity is what that is. It's hard to maintain this even keel with the Holy Spirit in us because we're constantly fighting the flesh. It's like uh, the simple things. We fight the flesh all the time. Your desire. When you have to give up, get up in the morning, but you don't want to get up, do you fight it? I did that this morning. I have my phone. My phone is my alarm, and I have it on vibrate. And I looked at the time. I go, oh, I got a couple more minutes. And I just grabbed the phone, and I put it underneath my pillow with my finger on the button to stop it. You know how that works? Now, I have an Android. I think it probably works the same with an iPhone. But I put it under the pillow, and the first vibration that goes off, it's, oh, click that thing, and just lay there. And oh, I don't want to get up yet. And I did it like five times. I didn't want to get up. You know, you got to get up. You got to review your message. You know, you got to make sure it's all set to go this morning. And I, I finally got up. So I resisted that. I didn't want to do that. The flesh resists what we know we ought to do, and we do the things we shouldn't do. And that's our lives. But God says, I'm going to correct all that. But from now on until we get that new body, it's going to be a struggle. So if we seek after God, he meets us. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He wants to guide us. We may resist him. We go back and we repent of that. And then we say, God, I'm sorry. He goes, I know. And I'm going to give you a new body. You just keep going forward. A righteous man or woman falls seven times, and seven times they get right back up, and they get right back on the bike and continue forward. So these 12 men, they believed in God, they trusted in him, they were continuing in the faith delivered to them by Moses, which they were required to do. They just needed a little further understanding or fuller understanding. And just like Aquila and Priscilla gave Apollos more understanding, Paul gave these 12 men more understanding now the disciples the rest of the disciples i'm going to digress a little bit here they received the holy spirit before pentecost remember when we were going through the book of acts in the chapters one and two and the baptism of the holy spirit what all that is and how it's a controversial subject and i pointed out that after the resurrection jesus shows up in john chapter 20 and it's a locked room, and they were fearing the Jews, the disciples that were there. Jesus materializes in the locked room. It's a miracle that that happens. And he says, peace be unto you. And he tried to comfort them twice. He told them, peace be unto you. And once they calmed down probably a little bit, he blew on them. He blew on them, said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is before Pentecost. So they received the indwelling Holy Spirit, which means they were part of the church at that time. That's when the church began with them. And then the Pentecost, that's where it went out. So they were in Christ at that time, having the Holy Spirit on the inside. And that's specifically in John chapter 20, verse 22. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, Afterwards, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and Acts chapter 2, verse 3, this is where we see them. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. The power of the Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues, and they prophesied as the Spirit enabled them. So there were two separate happenings with the Holy Spirit. There was the indwelling Holy Spirit, and then there was the Holy Spirit that baptized them and enabled them for ministry. Those two things are separate. Now, some people would say, well, that's just for the first century. 
It's not like that now. When you get the indwelling Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit baptism filling. It's all the same thing. I don't believe it is all the same thing. I don't believe that's the way Scripture is set up. Now, the Holy Spirit is something that you can ask for. Now, is that the baptism or the filling? And I would say yes. It's either one. You can ask God to give you his Holy Spirit, not asking for the indwelling because that happens automatically. Like we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, that happens automatically. We are sanctified by the Holy Spirit, that happens automatically. We don't have to do anything to have this Holy Spirit act in that way. But there's an example in Scripture in Luke chapter 11, verses 9 through 13, and you'll be familiar with this. <clears throat> it reads, So I say to you, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks the door will be open. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, first, if you notice, he says, your father in heaven, you already are in the family of God. You already have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We know that there are those who are sons of God, and we know that there are those who are sons of Satan or sons of the enemy. Those are the people who have not received Jesus Christ. In this text, he says, your father in heaven will give you the Holy Spirit if you ask. And if you think you haven't been baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit, you just ask. And what does he promise to do? Give you what you ask for. Because he's your father. If you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, he goes, okay. The same thing is true with wisdom in James. James says if you ask for wisdom, he will give you the wisdom. He doesn't say, well, you weren't at church last week, so I'm not going to do that for you. You didn't pray enough, so I'm not going to. You didn't give enough, so I'm not going. He doesn't do that. He simply says, If you ask me, I'm going to give it to you. The problem comes in in a lot of churches. How does this manifest itself? How does the Holy Spirit coming into us, whether filling or baptism, how does it manifest ourselves? And I've already covered this a little bit. It can be tongues and prophecies, but most of the time I believe it's not. Most of the time I believe it is something that the Holy Spirit does does for us and if he wants to make an example of something for you or for something for somebody else then there might be some type of manifestation for that so this is not the indwelling holy spirit but it is this power for the spirit and we can pray for the baptism or the filling either one it's available to all and some people don't make the distinction between baptism and filling that's fine You, you don't have to God isn't restricted by what we call something. God is his own person. He's his own individual. He is God. He can decide what he wants to do. And we don't get in the way of that if we're simply asking, God, I I don't care what it is. If it's baptism or filling, I want it. It's from you. It's always good. It's never bad. The problem of this is it, it... leads to issues inside the church of interpreting the scriptures properly now also and i'll get into that also in a second here the idea that paul would come up and lay his hands on these 12 men and then they would receive the gift of the holy spirit and gifts at that time that is scriptural first timothy 4 14 Paul laid his hands on Timothy, and of course he received a gift at that time. It's singular here. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. So elders can lay hands on people and pray for them. People who aren't elders and deacons can lay hands on people and pray for them. Pastors can put hands on people and pray for them. The apostles did in the beginning of the church. They laid their hands, and people got a blessing. They either felt great on the inside, just God's protection, or they got a gift of some kind. And these gifts come as the Holy Spirit determines who should have a particular gift. And I've already talked about the gifts. We've gone through 1 Corinthians. 
Each of us have a gift or a set of gifts that are supposed to be used for his purposes, not for our own individual betterment. We're supposed to use them for the body of Christ. And that that will benefit us as well because the greatest in God's kingdom is the servant of all. And so, and, and that person will be blessed by how they bless other people. So if somebody comes up and says, well, let me pray for you. And they put their hand on you and they start to pray for you. It's just a, it's a point of connection is what it is. It's not that there's all of a sudden the Holy Spirit goes through the head, down through the heart, out through the arm, zaps the person on the shoulder and they receive that same power and they can start, you know, it's not like that. And people misconstrue that and they come up with all kinds of weird doctrines and practices in the church. It's simply a point of connection. Now, is it possible to believe in Jesus Christ, confess him as your Lord and Savior, be baptized in water and not have received the baptism or filling of the Holy Spirit? The answer is yes. There's an example of this in Scripture. We know that Acts chapter 8, this is where the apostles had heard that the Samaritans had received Jesus Christ, and so they sent some people up there to minister to them, and they did not know about the Holy Spirit, and they received the Holy Spirit, but they were already saved. This is another example in Scripture. In Acts chapter 8, verse 16, it says there, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, they had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So predominantly, what is it that you get when you receive the baptism of the Spirit or the filling of the Spirit? It's a good four-letter word, love. You get love. And the greatest of faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. That's what you get from God. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. It's the love that you receive for others, where before you may have been critical of other individuals. You know, when I read of all the shenanigans and the the despicable things that are happening in the news, I think to myself, God still loves them, and he wants them saved as well. And there's some heinous crimes that are going on around the world. But God still loves them and he wants them saved as well. And and God can give us the love for the people instead of, maybe you've seen this in the past where somebody, they go through a, a capital punishment case, they're convicted and there's an execution date and there's people outside just cheering for the death of the individual. That's not love. It may be several things, but it's not love. Because there's still a human being that has fallen. They were created in the image of God. And God would have them saved as well. And, and that's his heart. And so that needs to be our, our heart. <clears throat> so if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, if you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, the predominant thing that you're going to receive is love. Now there are two camps in this doctrine of the Holy Spirit. One is, it's weird So preach, preach, preach. Never talk about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does. Because there's just a bunch of wacko people out there that do wacko things. The other side is, let's follow the signs and wonders wherever we can get them. Let's just go for the experience. And I think it needs to be in the middle. Not either extreme. Not signs and wonders following the believers, but believers following signs and wonders. So these can really be a problem and there's a group of churches they're more into the moving of the spirit in calvary chapel the history of calvary chapel you had chuck smith and then you had a bunch of people in leadership under him that wanted to experience the holy spirit more they wanted more signs and wonders and they ended up having a leader in that movement named john wimber and john wimber broke off and he became the vineyard the vineyard churches and there's plenty of works of the Holy Spirit in Calvary Chapel, but they just wanted more. They wanted to be more like a Pentecostal-type service. And so the, there was a split at that time. And Pastor Chuck, he basically said, and it's in my own words, if that's where you want to go, go ahead and go. There was no animosity. He just said, yeah, okay, go, if that's what you want to do. you know. But we're Calvary Chapel. If you want something else different, just go in that direction and there are several churches that go off in that direction and they start getting weird and they start getting heretical now i'm not saying that is the case with the vineyard 
but certainly there are other churches that are in that vein. One of them is Bethel. Bethel Church. They are into all kinds of weird, strange things like tarot card reading, Christian tarot cards. And I've told you before about the grave sucking that is there and their school of ministry, just weird, strange doctrines. And those things are to be avoided. And that's the person who's always looking for the next high, the next uh, excitement, the next thing, the next movement that's going to take place. And on the other side, you have the cold orthodoxy. That's It's just the word, and that's all you have to rely on. And the Holy Spirit is in the word, and he ministers to us in the word. And that's the end of the story. Where God has, quote-unquote, an affectionate relationship with us, and he wants us to experience that. So it's not cold orthodoxy. It's not the radical, on-the-fringe type of environment. Uh, there used to be this meme out there called, um, I'm doing this from memory. Uh, it's the girlfriend who's just over the top and she has this big smile and wide eyes, something like that. And, and she's always going over the top to be this guy's girlfriend. Like I organized all your clothes in your dresser today because we're one. You know, stuff like that, just a girlfriend doing that. that. That's like the weird side. Don't be the weird side, but don't be the cold orthodox side. Ask God to work his, whole, work his work with his Holy Spirit in you and that you would have that love and you would be able to express that love to others. That's the whole idea of the baptism or the filling of the Spirit. God wants to woo people into the kingdom he doesn't want to come and beat them over the head you know even when you go to the book of first corinthians chapter 12 through 14 paul he exhorted the people and admonished them don't go off on these weird cult bends of just using the gifts where people are going to walk in the church and think you're absolutely crazy you're nuts looney tunes just stop doing it because everybody was speaking in tongues at one time and he goes knock it off our god is a god of order chapter 14 of that particular book and he's not going to be a god of disorder and <clears throat> i've seen church services where the music's playing people are jumping up and down women in white dresses down to the knees with no shoes on and flower bands on their hair running up and down the aisles. this is all at the same time running up and down the aisles and other people going up and down the aisles with banners because his love is a banner over me that's what it says in the old testament and and then you'll see other examples of people shaking and just doing weird things and they say it's the moving of the spirit no that's you moving that is not the moving of the spirit and so we want to stay in line with what the holy spirit says this is what the church is supposed to look like don't become cold in your heart and rigid but also don't become way out of line at trying to experience things that aren't really taking place so there is abuse going on with the spirit and the gifts of the spirit so to speak that the holy spirit is not a part of at all and then there is the in line and we want to be in line with what god wants us to do this and the subject of the baptism of the spirit it's elementary this is not something that is a deep subject Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it talks about the elementary teachings of Christ. And those things are like uh, sin and repentance and baptisms and uh, laying on of hands and all of those subjects are just basics to the Christian faith. All Christians should know about those. When it comes to baptisms, now I've given you this list before. I, I prefer an acrostic for this. And the acrostic is for suffering servants doing what Jesus might find right. And if, if you were to write that out with the first letter a lot larger than all the rest, for suffering servants doing what Jesus might find right, speaks of all the baptisms that are in the scripture. The first one is a baptism by fire. That would be the word for. 
And we know that there's a baptism of fire that is in Scripture. We know that the whole world is going to be baptized in fire. First Corinthians chapter 3 says we are going to be baptized in fire in our works. The good ones will remain and the wood, hay, and stubble will be burnt up. Then there's the baptism of suffering. Jesus talked about in the Gospel of Luke chapter 12 verse 50 that he was going to undergo a baptism. And he was not worried about it, but there was some... And I don't want to say anxiety, but he knew it was going to be a tough time to go through. And that's a baptism of suffering, where you are immersed in suffering. And then the, for suffering servants, there is the servants, which stands for spirit baptism, which is clearly taught in Scripture. And then for suffering servants doing, well, there's a baptism for the dead. We don't get baptized for the dead Paul, when he talked about that in 1 Corinthians, wasn't saying we should do that for the dead. The Mormon church interpreted that saying, no, we have to be baptized for the dead because we can get them to the next level of heaven. I I recently found out you can get married vicariously for somebody else in the Mormon church that has died. And because you do that, they are considered worthy when they die. They're married now, and they can go to the highest celestial kingdom. They're not stuck in the telestial or the terrestrial. There's three stages of heaven in their doctrine. Weird. It, it's just weird that they do that. Paul wasn't advocating for that. He was talking about the resurrection. He said, even pagans... They're baptized for the dead because they think it is efficacious or meritorious for the next life, that it will help them in the next life. That's all he was saying because he was making the case for the resurrection. He wasn't making a case for being baptized for the dead, but it is talked about in Scripture. So for suffering servants, doing what would be water, water baptism. Everybody should be water baptized. For suffering servants, doing what? Jesus, there's a baptism into Jesus. That is Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. We are baptized into Jesus. We become part of his body. We are immersed in him. We, we relate to him. For suffering servants doing what Jesus might, there is the Moses being baptized into Moses, which means you simply identify with Moses. Everything that Moses taught, you're right with him. You, you are part of what Moses is a part of. And as a subset of that, there is the find or figurative baptism. It elaborates on being baptized into the cloud and into the sea. It talks about those Israelites, when they came out, they were baptized into Moses, into the cloud, and into the sea. They had the Shekinah glory of God, that, which was there. That's the cloud that was there that uh, helped them to travel at night. It lit their way. It also prevented the uh, Egyptians from attacking the Jews. It created darkness on the other side, that particular cloud. And there was fire in the cloud during the day, uh, fire at night. And, and all of those things were being baptized into the cloud into the fire, and into Moses. And it's figurative. It's not literal. And then for suffering servants doing what Jesus might find right, there is the baptism of repentance, which these 12 men in the uh, book of Acts chapter 19, they had gone through that. It was a water baptism for repentance. These are the baptisms in the New Testament. All of them. And they're basic information. This is what Hebrews chapter 6 says. Okay, learn about these, but Lord willing, we'll go on from these. Hebrews 6, verse 1 through 3, I'll read it for you. It says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. In other words, these elementary teachings, if you're stuck on these, you haven't gone to maturity yet. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death or from faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. So we learn about these things. They're elementary. They're basic. It'd be like learning your ABCs and learning how to talk. Uh, That's what we're supposed to do as disciples. That's where we start. Now, Paul goes on. In verse 8, and he enters the synagogue 
and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them were obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. What we are following is Jesus Christ. We are called the church, the bride of Christ, but we are also called the way. That's what Christianity is. You could go up to somebody and say, hey, would you like to follow the way? That'd be a perfect opener. And they go, the way? What is that? And you explain to them what the way is. Well, there's a guy by the name of Paul 2,000 years ago that talked about this. The way. Do you want to know more about the way? And normally they're going to go, yeah. Or they'll just blow you off and they'll say, no, I don't want to hear anything like that. But if they say yes, you got a perfect opportunity. It's a way. They do this in radio. It's a hook. You know, right before they go to the commercial, they give you a hook. When you come back, we're going to talk about the way. What is the way? Stay tuned. And, you know, that's how they do it. And so that's how you guys can do it as well. Now, verse 9 says, But some of them were obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now, Tyrannus is a despot or a tyrant. That's the hall. That's, that's where they went. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. This is all of Turkey. Everyone heard the word of the Lord with Paul being there only two years. So he spoke boldly. He argued persuasively and being able to discuss convincingly the truths about God. That's what we're supposed to do. If we follow Jesus' example, and then Paul, who was his apostle, if we follow his example, we're supposed to be able to speak boldly. You don't have to be afraid and argue persuasively, which means you have to know the word. Not only the word, but here I'm going to say it again, the culture. You have to know the culture. Speak to the people in the culture. Most churches today do not use the King James Version Bible. Why? Even Romeo and Juliet, where far art thou? But you tell that to some kid, wherefore art thou? What, what are you talking about? This last week, my grandsons, they were watching the film Cars. And if you know what that is, it's cars that are like people and, and Lightning McQueen is in there and there's this gas station that Flo owns and all these cars pull up to the gas station and, and they're all drinking. They're drinking out of cans and these cans have something coming out of them. And I noticed it in the film. And so I brought up a picture of it on my phone and I took it first to my daughter. I said, do you know what this is? And this is the thing that comes out of the can of oil. Remember when we used to get oil in cans? This comes out of the can of oil. And I asked my daughter, I said, do you know what this is? She goes, no. I went to my granddaughters, the older ones, and I said, do you know what this is? No. I went to Patty, and Patty said, I know what that is. No, I, I can't think of what it is. It's the old piercing spout that you would put into the can to pour it in your engine. And that's how you used to put the oil in there. And I thought, wow, am I so far removed that I know what an oil spout is for a can of oil? And the next generation has no idea. There, there are so many things that the next generation has no idea. You've seen the one where they've tried to use a rotary phone, the, this generation. Have you ever seen that? How do you use that thing? Put your finger in there and you turn it around. You've got to take your finger out and let it go. How do you make a phone call on something like that? And, and I've seen videos on that. They, they just don't know. You know, and, and you can show a picture of that to somebody who's a iGen or X uh, Gen or millennial, and maybe they know, maybe they don't. This whole generation is going by of little stuff like that that we know of. That's why we have to be in touch with the culture now. 
We have to know what their language is. We have to know what their likes and dislikes are and what they argue for and what they argue against. If we can do that, we will be much more effective. And Paul knew all of this. He knew the word. He knew Roman society. He knew the, uh, the Greco-Roman culture that was out there. He was familiar with all of it. So, But there were individuals that still opposed the message. They were hardened in their hearts. And they spoke against the way. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, it says, So as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. And he's referring to the Israelites here. Where your fathers tested and tried me for over 40 years, saw what I did. That is why I was angry with this generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray. And they have not known my way, so I declared on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest. If we harden our hearts and we become resistant to the Holy Spirit, that's what happens. God says, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. Now, I see I'm out of time and I'm not quite done here, but I will read this. God did extraordinary or unusual miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. So does that mean that some cloths, some handkerchiefs, maybe a hem of a robe can be used to heal people? Next week I'll cover that. He says, call the hook and get you back next week. So may the Lord give you wisdom when it comes to the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. May your heart incline itself towards God. He loves us. He wants to give us gifts. He wants to bless us. And if we turn away from that and we say, oh, it's just weird. It's all psychobabble and nuts over on this side and it's cold orthodoxy on that side. Just come to the middle and say, God... I don't want to be weird. I don't want to be cold and dry and dead. I want to be right in your will. And he will answer that prayer. And he will give you wisdom and discernment to understand what his perfect will is. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for Paul and his obedience, giving the gospel to those who didn't have it, bringing the name of Jesus to those who needed to be saved. May we have this same fire, Lord. He reached the entire area of Asia Minor with your word, with your promises. May we reach this week, just one person, reach out to them. Give them the good news of the glorious kingdom which is to come. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. And the church said, please stand.